Tonight we're going to be in Joshua 15 through 17. Well, the last time we saw basically the tally of who was conquered under Moses' leadership and who was conquered under Joshua's leadership. And we also started to see the boundaries of some of the tribes of Israel. And we also saw a closer look into the character of Caleb. Tonight we're going to go through three chapters. Uh, there's just a lot of geography. We're going to go through that rapidly. But we're going to see more of the boundaries of the tribes of Israel and highlight the notable incidents. And we're also going to see a little bit more about Caleb and the influence that he left to his daughter and his son-in-law. And based on the type of man he was, we're going to see what these people received as far as his, what he, what he brought, um, brought down to them. So we're going to start with chapter 15. This then was the lot of the tribe of the children of Judah, according to their families. The border of Edom at the wilderness of Zin southward was the extreme southern boundary. And their southern border began at the shore of the Salt Sea from the bay that faces southward. Then they went out to the southern side of the ascent of Akrabim, passed along to Zin, ascended on the south side of Kadesh Barnea, passed along to Hezron, went up to Adar, and went around to Karkaah. Now, Again, it really helps to have one of them study Bibles where you have the maps where all these things are named. And probably as we go through Joshua and we go through the boundaries, maybe before the Bible study, it's a good idea to just familiarize yourself with some of these names. As a matter of fact, um, at the door, when you come in, we have one of these handouts that uh, basically show the settlement of the tribes of Israel. So you can put this next to your map with all the different names of the brooks and the mountains and stuff. And you can see basically where each of the 12 tribes settled. Verse 4. From there it passed towards Asmon and went to the brook of Egypt, and the border ended at the sea. This shall be your southern border. The east border was the Salt Sea as far as the mouth of the Jordan. And the border on the northern quarter began at the bay of the sea at the mouth of the Jordan. The border went up to Beth Hogla and passed north of Beth Araba. And the border went up to the stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben. Then the border went up toward Debir from the valley of Achor, and it turned northward toward Gilgal, which is before the ascent of Adumim, which is on the south side of the valley. The border continued toward the waters of En-Shemesh and ended at En-Rogel. Some, again, some of these names are going to, you're going to say, oh, I, I, they're just going to ring a bell. Debir, um, you know, the Salt Sea, obviously we know what that is. The Great Sea is known as the Mediterranean Sea. Um, again, a lot of these names you're going to be familiar with. And uh, if you look in your, again, the study Bible, you'll say, okay, that's where that was from. Verse 8. And the border went up to the valley of the son of Hinnom to the southern slope of the Jebusite city, which is Jerusalem. The border went up to the top of the mountain that lies before the valley of Hinnom westward, which is at the end of the valley of Rephaim northward. Then the border went around from the top of the hill to the fountain of the water of Nephtoah and extended to the city of Mount Ephron. And the border went around to Baala, which is Kerjath Jerim. Then the border turned westward from Baala to Mount Seir, passed along to the side of Mount Jerim on the north, which is Chesalon, went down to Beth Shemesh and passed on to Timnah. And the border went out to the, to the side of Ekron northward. Then the border went around to Shikron, passed along to Mount Bela and extended to Jabneel, and the border went ended at the sea. 
The west border was the coastline of the Great Sea. This is the boundary of the children of Judah all around according to their families. Now, yes, it's geography, but it's also inheritance uh, to, to hopefully lessen the bickering and the squabbling over land rights. They had to be pretty much, you know, they didn't have global positioning sensors like we have now, so they could map everything out to the millimeter. Uh, so they had to use brooks and valleys and mountains and seas and streams, and this is how you knew what your border was. And they weren't primitive like, you know, the evolutionistic cavemen. These were very smart people. You know, they were able to basically snap a line and make straight lines and, and really even map things out. They weren't stupid people. But this was, again, <laughs> absent global positioning sensors. These are the things that they had to rely on, right? Okay. So, whew, these are the boundaries of the remainder of Judah. Now, in verse 8, again, I'm going to pick some things out that are pretty notable. In verse 8, we hear about the Jebusites. The Jebusites were the Canaanite inhabitants of Jerusalem before the children of Israel took it over, and that's significant. These were tough peoples to oust, and only under David's leadership are they removed. And for scripture reference, you have 2 Samuel 5, 6 through 10. 2 Samuel 5, 6 through 10 talks about David's conquest of Jerusalem. And we're going to come back to that. Verse 13. Now to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he gave a portion among the children of Judah according to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, namely Kirjath Arba, which is Hebron. Arba was the father of Anak. And if you remember the end of 14, we see that Caleb goes into this area and he takes uh, a very a stronghold Kirjath Arba for himself, which he names Hebron, which I believe meant fellowship, if you remember from our last uh, Joshua study. So we're going back into Caleb, all right? So you're going to re-familiarize yourself with him, and then you see a little bit more about what happens with Caleb and his descendants. Verse 14, Caleb drove out the three sons of Anak from there, Shishai, Ahiman, and Talmaj, or Talmai, excuse me, the children of Anak. Then he went up from there to the inhabitants of Debir. Formerly the name of Debir was Kirjath-Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kirjath-Sefer and takes it, to him I will give Akshah, my daughter, his wife. So Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, took it, and he gave him Akshah, his wife, his daughter, his wife. Now it was so, when she came to him, she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. So she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, what do you wish? She answered, Give me a blessing, since you have given me the land in the south. Give me also springs of water. So he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. So my question is, or the question is, what did Caleb, why did Caleb ask somebody else to finish the job? We saw he was all full of spunk in the last chapter. He goes up the hill and, and he did a good job. He uh, removed the three sons of Anak. He took the, the land from the biggest, baddest giant. And, he, you know, Caleb definitely did the job. But we know that Caleb is at least older than 85 at this point. Um, could it be that he was physically weary at this point? Could it be an illness? Does anybody know? I don't think so. Could it be that he was just testing his, you know, descendants to see if they would carry on the same type of uh, desire for the Lord and the same type of, if the Lord is with me, I can do this. Maybe it was a test. I don't know. But it's, it's good conjecture. But he offers his daughter, Aisha, to the man who would conquer these people. And again, remember, these people were giants. They were probably scary. 
So it stands to reason that Asa was probably a cutie. Can I say that? But Caleb, um, his example of faith spilled over to Othniel, his, which becomes his son-in-law. And Othniel, we see in Judges chapter 3, he resurfaces as a judge. He becomes one of the leaders of Israel to help them along until the kings take over. Also, his daughter, uh, as a girl, boldly asked for springs to irrigate, irrigate the land. Because really, without the springs... And you have a bunch of land and you don't have the water to irrigate the crops and feed the livestock, you have a problem. You either have a parcel of property that you've got to hope that there's regular rainfall or you've got to be beholden to your neighbors to see if they'll let you use their springs. So she asked boldly her dad, hey, I could use these springs. It would help me out a lot. So Caleb passes down not only material wealth, which is good, but he also passes down a spiritual inheritance. And I even think, when I think of our kids, I think parents are so caught up with giving their kids material possessions. You know, the, you love your child. You're going to give them this. You're going to give them that. You're going to save for college. But also, that's really useless unless you give them pass down a spiritual inheritance. One's got to go with the other. I mean, you want to be generous to your kids. I mean, but you also can't forget the spiritual aspect. What are we passing down to our kids? Well... Hopefully, one of the things that we pass down to our children is an example of a good marriage. That's a good start. (laughs) How about a good example of managing money, financing, uh, finances, teaching the child as they get older to manage their money wisely? Uh, How about an example of generosity? What good is it to teach them about Christianity if you don't actively teach them what it means to be generous? Uh, I remember, and I've shared this from the pulpit, when we were young, my sister and I were little kids, it was, you know, my parents were divorced and it wasn't a good time. We weren't at welfare for a while. We lived in my parents, uh, my grandparents' basement. It was cold. I still remember keeping warm by the oven. So I come from humble beginnings. But what I do remember was even though my mom wasn't born again, she wrote checks to, to I don't know, organizations or whatever, to poor people. And I would say, Mom, what are you doing? She goes, well, these people are really poor. And I was thinking, I thought we were poor. (laughs) But there's always somebody who's got it worse than you. And my mom taught me, even as as none of us were believers, none of us, she taught me generosity. That's pretty amazing. And unfortunately, she probably put some people, some Christians today, to shame with their stinginess. What are we teaching them? Does my son, what does my seven-year-old see in our home? Does he see prayer? If he was at one of your house and you were babysitting him and you say, hey, how, how often do your parents pray? Would I be fine with what he had to say? Go ahead and interrogate him, because we do pray. We pray every day. Would my son see faith if somebody asked him about his faith? Would he know enough because of the example in the home? There's no sense in me teaching you and teaching on Sunday. And, you know, Randy Cahill said, what is, what's the sense if you're a parent, you're going out saving the world if you can't save your own kids? And we know that God saves our kids, but what he meant was, you know, if you're neglecting your kids, there's a problem somewhere. You know, don't save the world Fix the problems at home first. So prayer, faith, does my son even know the word of God? I mean, I don't expect him, I don't tell him you can't eat dinner until you memorize these scriptures. But does he know what the Bible means? Does he understand God's word? At least concepts, right? And, you know, look, not everybody has the opportunity that I had. You know, when Josiah was born, we were already saved. So we got to start fresh. Some of you, maybe you got saved later in life and your kids were already teens or out of the house. I don't know. 
but um, and that's certainly a challenge when you're trying to recoup those lost years. Uh, but anyway, like Caleb, the other question is, do we wholly follow the Lord? I said holy was an adjective, W-H-O-L-L-Y, but it's actually an adverb. It modifies a verb. So Caleb wholly followed the Lord. Could the same thing be said about us? Verse 20. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the families of Judah, according to their families. The cities at the limits of the tribe of the children of Judah toward the border of Edom in the south were Kabziel, Eder, Jagger, and I'm going to save you and spare you. <laughs> I'm not going to read verses 22 through 62. They're just a bunch of names. Some of you will remember. You can read them on your own. Um, so I'm not going there. <laughs> Don't tell Lloyd. No, just kidding. So verse 63. As for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah could not drive them out. But the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. So at, at the time that this was being chronicled, the Jebusites were still dwelling in Jerusalem. Now, we spoke about this a little bit before in, in chapter 15, the earlier part, uh, and now we see the actual failure to remove them in verse 63. Now, this is a missed blessing. Not mixed, this is a missed blessing. Jerusalem eventually becomes a center of worship for the nation, but... This is delayed for centuries, for hundreds of years. Think about it. Generations came and went, and the Jebusites were still there in Jerusalem. God had plans for this place to be the center of national worship. But the children of Israel missed their blessings. Of course, they were hard to drive out. I'm sure a lot of these people were. But if they would have carried on the same attitude out of some of these great men and women of faith, they could have done it, I believe, strongly. What's really sad to see is that today we can make the uh, analogy that it's sad to see some believers who miss these blessings. I think that God has a lot to offer us. I believe that God is a lot that he wants to give us. But as a good father, some things he's going to give us and some things he's going to ask us to fight for. Some things he's going to ask us to go by faith and say, Lord, I believe that you can do this for me. I believe that you want me here. Uh, and, and you have to realize that. And, and they just kind of, they let it go for hundreds of years. But, you know, it's so fashionable to pick on the children of Israel, but I don't think today's society is any different. Again, I think, and I know many believers who just want to make it to heaven and that's it. <laughs> you know, the Apostle Paul says that in Corinthians that some will make it just by escaping the flames. Like the, the hairs on the back of their legs will be curled when they get into heaven. They just made it. And that's, some people are fine with that, but that's really sad because it's a missed blessing. Chapter 16. The lot, this is the boundaries of Joseph. The lot fell to the children of Joseph, Joseph from the Jordan by Jericho, to the waters of Jericho on the east, to the wilderness that goes up from Jericho through the mountains to Bethel, then went out from Bethel to Luz, passed along to the border of the Archites at Ataroth, and went down westward to the boundary of the Japhletites, as far as the boundary of lower Beth-Horon to Gezer, and it ended at the sea. So the children of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim took their inheritance. These are the boundaries of Ephraim, starting with verse 5. And the, the border of the children of Ephraim, according to their families, was thus. The border of their inheritance on the east side was 
Adaroth Adar, as far as Upper Beth Horon. And the border went out toward the sea on the north side of Mishmathoth. Then the border went around eastward to Ta'anath, Shiloh, and passed by it on the east, Janaha. Then it went down from Janaha to Ataroth and Naara, reached to Jericho, and came out at the Jordan. The border went out from Tapua westward to the brook Cana, and it ended at the sea. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Ephraim according to their families. The separate cities for the children of Ephraim were among the inheritance of the children of Manasseh, all the cities with their villages. And they did not drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. But the Canaanites, the Canaanites dwell among the Ephraimites to this day and have become forced laborers. So, we said the last time, the Levites, okay, their inheritance was the Lord. They didn't get land, so to speak. They had certain cities, they had the, you know, the, the service of the Lord, but they didn't get a big chunk of real estate like the other 11 tribes did. Now, to make up to that lo- for that lost number, the tribe of Joseph was divided into his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So that's what we're reading here. But I want to focus on verse 10. They didn't drive them out. They just made them forced labor. Now, we're going to revisit that, so hold that thought. There's a few revisiting going on here. We're going to see it again, and then we're going to, we're going to tie it up. Chapter 17. This is the boundaries of the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now, there was also a lot for the tribe of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph, namely for Machir, the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilead. Because he was a man of war, therefore he was given Gilead and Bashan. And there was a lot for the rest of the children of Manasseh, according to their families, for the children of Abiezar, the children of Helek, the children of Azrael, the children of Shechem, the children of Hefer, the children of Shemida. These were the male children of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, according to their families. But Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, had no sons, but only daughters. And these are the names of the daughters, Mahla, Noah, Hoglah, Milcah, and Tirzah. And they came before Eleazar the priest, before Joshua the son of Nun, and before the ruler, saying, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our brothers. Therefore, according to the commandment of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among their father's brothers. So what you see here is, I want to focus on verses 3 and 4, the daughters of Zelophehad. These girls had a lot of spunk. Because if you got one of my favorite things to do when I study the Bible is to put myself in these people's positions. A lot of times we miss out on what the meaning is because we don't put ourselves in the time, the culture, the location. So this is what I want to do here. These four girls, right? They come before Eleazar the priest and Joshua, who is the military leader, a national hero, and the rulers of Israel. And these people are really, these men, are representations of God on earth. Okay? Not that they are gods, but they're representations of God on earth. He ordained them to be leaders. So it would have been very brave for women in that day, especially four girls huddled together. Well, you go first. You know, I don't know how they did it, but uh, maybe they shuffled arm to, uh, shoulder to shoulder. But they were very brave to go up against, not up against, but to go before these men and to ask for this. And I see the same thing with Ahsa, uh, Caleb's daughter, although she went to ask her father, uh, but these four went against these, uh, again, 
these uh, leaders of Israel. And what I can relate this to when I was reading this, I was thinking about a teaching in the New Testament where it says, you have not because you ask not. James 4.2. Now, of course, Jesus was the pioneer of that. You know, knock, it will be answered you know, to you. Seek, you will find, right? And James echoed that in the book of James, which is like a, a microcosm of, of all Jesus' teachings. But if they didn't ask, probably nobody would have looked out for them. Now, of course, we know that God would have looked out for them. But as far as in the temporal plane, you know, who would have looked out for these young ladies? And I wonder how many great things the Father has for us, but we don't get it because we don't ask. And again, it's, it's, you see the, the same theme coming up again. And even James says, in, in full context, James 4.2, he says, You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. And then verse 3, he says, You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. I wonder how many things that God has in store for us, but we don't get because we ask for things that are just materialistic or things that feed our flesh, things that really don't have anything to do with, uh, you know, furthering God's kingdom. And I remember specifically Jesus said when he was talking about asking and receiving from the Father in prayer, and he said, you almost think that he would say, well, ask whatever you want. And God will give it to you. He said, and whatever you ask, how much of the Holy Spirit you ask, the Lord will give to you. Remember that? So you think he's going to say, well, you know, God's going to give you a fishing business. God's going to give you that. And Jesus says, as much as you ask for the Holy Spirit, the Lord will give you that. So you can have all of the Holy Spirit that you want. But I see that in Christianity. People say, woe is me. God forgot about me. And then I would ask, did you ask? And did you ask in persistent? And did you ask with unselfish motives? I mean, even if I, if I could use myself for an example, I, I mean, I'm always thinking about when is the right time to leave the force and go into being a pastor full time. And of course, I've got to, you know, there's got to be an issue with health care. I've got to provide for my family. And, um, you know, there's a lot of things that I'm looking at here. And I'm always thinking about it and I'm always praying about it. But why am I asking? Is it so that I could do another, I could do 25 years, which I'm not going to, and get a, a great pension check and then have the church take care of me. No, it's when God's time for me to go, to go. I don't, there's no way I'm going to make 25 years. I don't see it happening. So the point I'm trying to make is what I'm asking from the Lord is tell me the right time to go and the right time to go so that I can bless the fellowship. It's not about how I can be taken care of. It's about I'm looking for something, but I'm also looking for something when, for, for me to receive so that you can receive, if that makes any sense. And also, I think about my son. Uh, what do we ask for? What do we ask for in persistence? And when we go to bed at night or we wake up in the morning, I'm sure we have a long list of people to pray for, unsaved loved ones, etc. And if we're all honest, we, every so often we forget in our prayers about somebody to pray for, and then God puts it on our heart maybe a month down the road, and you're like, gee, I haven't prayed for that person in a while, right? So you, you try to really be diligent in your prayers. But one thing... One thing that I, I always prayed for for a long time was uh, my son's salvation. When I found out that my wife was pregnant, I still remember it was about 10 o'clock at night. We lived at 19 Arthur Street in East Brunswick. That's where I used to live. 
And she was sick for a while, and we, were, we thought it was the flu, and somebody said you should get a pregnancy test. <laughs> so we, I got her pregnancy test, went out to, late at night, got the test, and she took the pregnancy test, and it came back positive. And, of course, we was going, were going to go to the doctor and make sure it was a double positive, right? But we were actually trying not to have children, so we didn't understand what was happening, but God understood. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is um, I remember all the details. We sat in the kitchen. I remember where I was sitting because it just was such an ingrained part in my memory. But I remember my prayer from the moment the test came back positive till he was born all the way up until seven years old now. I haven't stopped praying this prayer. And it is, I said, Lord, we didn't ask for Josiah, but you gave him to us. Now that you've given him to us, I just pray that we can give him back to you in the form of salvation. This is something we didn't plan for, but you decided that this is what you wanted us to have. Now that we have him, Lord, I want him to come back to you, but I want it to be in the form of salvation. So I never stopped praying that. And you know what he gave us? It's funny when you ask for things and you really want that. You never know the form how God is going to give it to us. God gave us, and most of you know this, an Asperger's kid, which is, for those of you who don't know, it's a highly functioning form of autism. Most of you see him, he's a wonderful kid, but if you lived with him, you'd see a lot of the quirks and the ritualistic behavior that he has. And that was a challenge, too, when we found that out. But you know what? Josiah's black and white, heaven and hell. You can't move this kid. I don't care if it's a teacher or the principal in a school that says we, we came from monkeys. He, he rejects that. He tells him, he'll tell them flat out that they're wrong. So I believe that my son, he's not going to deviate. It's just they're just these Asperger's kids are just black and white salvation through Jesus Christ, repent and believe. He knows all that stuff. And you know what? I don't, I don't see... I'm still going to pray for him, of course, but the point I'm trying to make is I, we, we prayed and we prayed and we prayed and we prayed, and God pretty much gave us our wish. So, but what are we asking for? Is it, was it, do I, did I ask for a Ferrari? Maybe one day I'd like to drive one, but I don't expect to own one. And I don't ask for a Ferrari because I don't expect God to give me that. You know, he's not the celestial Santa Claus. So anyway, point is persistent prayer. Verse 12. Yet the children of Manasseh could not drive out the inhabitants of those cities, but the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. And it happened when the children of Israel grew strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not utterly drive them out. Only two verses packs a wallop. Okay, and we're going to get into that. The children of Israel had a problem with these Canaanites, but eventually the children of Israel grew strong enough to overpower them. Obviously, it's here from the text. No doubt God was behind the strengthening them because God gave them a command to drive out the inhabitants of Canaan. So when they got stronger, no doubt it came from God. But when God wants us to be victorious, he will always give us the strength to conquer. And sometimes my prayer is when I see a mountain or I see a, a Canaanite or I see the Jebusites in my own life and I just can't get around it. And I just say to the Lord, you know what, Lord, it's not working. It's now become it's now become your problem. It's not my problem anymore, because by my own strength, I can't figure this out. I can't get over it. I can't get around it. I'm really struggling with this, but I think this is where you want me to go. I can't deal with that person. I can't deal with that issue. I can't deal with that three months down the road, and I just say, you know what? If you want this to happen, it's, it's, you're going to give me the victory. And, and then you rest in that, right? If God really wants you to overcome something that seems insurmountable, he's going to give you the strength to get past it. 
But instead of conquering the children of Israel, or instead of conquering these people, the children of Israel put them to forced labor. Now, if they had the power to put them into slavery, well, it, go, it stands to reason they had the power to attack them and destroy them, at the very least drive them out of that land. But they chose to put them into forced labor or slavery. We see this again and again and again in opposition to God's commands. We covered this a little bit further before. You know, God says, drive them out utterly. God didn't mince words, and he kept repeating himself, and he kept repeating himself through his leaders. So what was the part, what memo didn't they get when it came to driving these people out? This, to me, is a big-time picture of whether you use the word toying or you use the word flirting with your sin. You don't completely drive out your sin because in your heart, in the fleshly part, you know that by not completely getting rid of it, there's some type of gratification to be gained by containing that sin. It's almost like having a vicious dog who's, or a rabid dog, and you just want to keep that dog because the dog provides something for you. Maybe it provides protection. And you're surrounded by children all around your neighborhood. Let me tell you something. That dog's eventually going to get over the fence, and he's going to do some damage that's irreparable. To me, this is a picture of, here's my sin. Instead of destroying it completely, I'm going to contain it. I'm going to build a fence around it, and I'm going to look at it, and I'm going to toy with it. And I'm going to control it. You can't control it. You've got to wipe it out, right? Maybe I'll just chat with that attractive secretary to pass the time. Just toy with my sin a little bit. Maybe I'll just charge a little bit more for that job than I normally would. I got the the materials at a little better of a price, and they're not going to know. This is, you know, I'm going to make a little bit more money here. Maybe I'll just, I shop here often. Those sunglasses, what, five, six bucks? I'll put them on my face. Maybe they won't notice as I walk past the cash register. I I mean, they owe me. I shop here all the time, right? (laughs) So, you know, it's just a picture of toying with our sin. Another quick story. I was at a a market, and I was in uniform, right, on patrol, and I go to pick up some stuff, and I go to this market, and the lady rings up the item that I get all the time. And I notice that... uh, it should be 19, because I'm good with numbers. It was 1968 or something was the figure. And she charges me 1668. So, you know, the stupid part of me, the first part of me thinks, well, it must be a police discount, so I'm just going to take the money and run. But then the spirit says, don't be an idiot. Tell her that she underrang you. So I, I said, listen, I, it's, it's, I always get the same thing. I see the prices on here. You know, I owe you $3. She goes, no, you don't. This is what it is. So then, of course, the, the flesh says, well, you don't want to insult her. She's obviously not that bright. Just walk away. So I walk away, and then it just like the spirit was just saying, go back and give her the money. So I go back and forth, and eventually I went back. I said, listen, you, you underrang me. Here's the $3. But it's almost like, you know, you try to get away with those little things, you know, those little things. And sometimes you actually have this stupid idea that you're entitled to it for whatever reason or another. I'm entitled to that. No, we can't contain our sin. We have to destroy it completely. We've got to eradicate it. Verse 14. Then the children of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given us but one lot and one portion to inheritance, to inherit, since we are a great people, inasmuch as the Lord has blessed us until now? So Joshua answered them, If you are a great people, then go up to the forest country and clear a place for yourself there in the land of the Perizzites and the giants since the mountains of Ephraim are too confined for you. But the children of Joseph said, The mountain country is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites who dwell in the land of the valley have chariots of iron, both those who are of Beth Shean 
and its towns and those who were of the valley of Jezreel. And the Joshua and Joshua spoke to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, saying, you are a great people and have great power. You shall not have one lot only, but the mountain country shall be yours. Although it is wooded, you shall cut it down and its farthest extent shall be yours. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have iron chariots and are strong. It's almost like they're whining about these iron chariots, you know, wah, the iron chariots. And then I would, well, and Joshua is saying, it's kind of cool. He goes, well, if you're so strong, you can take them. You know, you're, you are great people. You know, he's putting it back on them. Go take these people. It's like they, all they could see was the, the obstacles. All they could see was the chariots of iron. But the question is, what about God? How soon they forgot about the feats. And even in their lifetime, the feats delivered the land delivered to them by God. Even the youngest among them knew how they got that land. They were encouraged by Joshua to do it, but they did not. Joshua encouraged them to go and drive out these people, but they didn't. And what it shows me is they wanted more land, but they didn't want the responsibility that came with it. (laughs) And I think about uh, even people when you, and for some reason I thought about this, wanting their... The, the land, wanting the inheritance, wanting the money, but not wanting the responsibility that comes with it. Whether it's uh, the, in the police department to become a supervisor, a sergeant or a lieutenant. Hey, you know, I, I really want that extra money. OK, but there's responsibilities that come with that. You know, if you are at a job and you want to take some type of promotional test to become a manager, some people want to get promoted so they could do less work. But when you get promoted, you have a greater responsibility, even in ministry. You know, if you get promoted or you become a ministry leader, you have responsibility. And what I've realized is my life is not my own. All the time that I thought that I had and I used to have is, is not my time anymore. I have to put messages together. There's, I had lunch today with a board member that I had to, we had to talk about some office procedures. Um, you know, I have to do these things. <laughs> I have to deal with administrative stuff, stuff I don't want to do. I just want to teach the word of God and pray and talk to people. But I got to do a bunch of other stuff that I don't want to do. So when you, you know, again, ministry, whatever it is, as God moves you up and if God gives you uh, inheritance or he, he gives you a position, he gives you something, there's also responsibility that comes with that. You know, we don't get we don't get moved up to do less work. How soon they forget. And you know what? Again, I said it before, it's fashionable to pick on the children of Israel. But you know what? I'm speaking to myself as well as I'm speaking to anybody else. And certainly if I was in there with the children of Israel and I was out there, I might have been complaining like them. I might have said, I want more land. I might have done just the same things that they did. So I'm not picking on them. And as a matter of fact, sometimes I complain that the chariots of iron are too great. Just ask my wife. So chariots of iron in our lives, what are they? Well, sometimes they're family members. We all have somebody in our family somewhere that gets under our skin. And because they're family members, I see a lot of people making faces. And because they're family members, we're kind of stuck with them, right? They could be those chariots of iron. But at the same time, God also may use those people to temper us, to help us to be the better person. Because if we didn't have any problems and we didn't have any people who irritated us, how would we get, how would we grow, right? Sometimes your chariot of iron is a coworker, and you know what? You're stuck with that person for your whole career unless you quit, 
<laughs> and then you'll have another chariot of iron in another job. You know, we all, you, can't get a, you can't escape the chariots of iron. Sometimes for some people it will always be financial issues. There's some people who just always struggle financially. Maybe some poor decisions in the past, maybe some loans, maybe some debt, maybe a bankruptcy. There's your chariot of iron. Um, and for some, it'll be wayward children. And for some of us, <laughs> probably all of us, at some point in some portion of our personality is a flaw that we have in our personality that we know that we need to overcome. And it's a chariot of iron. And we think we get a handle on it, and then something happens and we say, I, I thought I got rid of that. I thought I dealt with that jealousy issue. I thought I dealt with that pride issue. And that's the chariot of iron. But the good news is, with God, what's the chariot of iron? God looks at that and goes, it's a chariot of iron. So it's not something I can't, I can't deal with. If I could move mountains and open the Red Sea, I could do something with those chariots. So it all, it all really boils down to, what are we going to do about those chariots? Are we going to be in fear and are we going to avoid them? Or are we going to ask the Lord to help us to overcome them? Well, so what we find out is that most of these intermediary chapters of Joshua have to do with inheritances that have to do with having land. You see some squabbles, we'll see some complaining, we'll see some greed as we go through these, all right? And it's, it's human nature. And I don't think it's any different today when it comes to inheritance. But the question is, do you know, out of all the 12 tribes, this is an easy, easy one that you all should get, so don't be afraid to call out. Out of all the tribes of Israel, right, let's, let's put them all into the mix. Who had the best deal out of all of them? Who didn't get the land and who got God as their inheritance? Who had, who had the best deal? Levites, right? The tribe of Levi. While there was friction among the tribes regarding all this inheritance stuff, the inheritance of Levi was the Lord God himself. And we have the same inheritance, our inheritance is not this earth or the things in the earth. Our inheritance is Jesus Christ himself. We could, we could be like the, the Joseph's kids and say, you know, we're great. We don't want to deal with those people, but we, like, we want more land because look at us. We're great. Or we could be like Levi and say, you know what? I'm not going to worry about the land. I'm going to worry about focusing on God, and that's where I'm going to go in that direction. So the question is, who do we want to be like? And if you look at Ephesians 1, 3 or 1 Peter 1, 3 through 6, or Galatians 3, 26 through 27, we see that Jesus Christ himself is our inheritance. And it's something that we really need to realize as Christians. Let's pray. Just kids. And